Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for keeping your word, protecting your word, God. Thank you for the living power in your word, Lord. Your word dwelling in us does mighty things, God. Oh, Lord, I pray on this morning, God, that you bless my brothers and sisters, God, as you've been doing in my life, God, as I study your text. Lord, jump off the pages, Lord God, into their minds and their hearts, Lord, that they may be obedient to your word, God, that they that your word satisfies a thirsty soul, God, that that soul that is hungry for more of you, God, satisfy us, Lord, we pray with your word. Be glorified on today, God. Remove all of me, God. And glorify yourself through this text, Lord. That's our prayer right now, Lord. In the authority of Jesus. Amen. John 15, the foundations of a joyful life, bearing fruit for God, bearing fruit for God. So let's read the text, verse uh, 15 through, sorry, verses 1 through 8, and then we'll... Look at it a little bit further. And the word of God reads, this is John 15, read verses 1 through 8. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it, cleans it, so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples and so prove to be my disciples. Naturally, for some of those with kids, we know this naturally kids, they want to be pleasing to their parents. Will we say that that's the case? They want to be pleasing to our, their parents. And so I think about my own kids when, when they do something good, when they get good grades in school, um, when they get uh, an award, when, they, when Riley comes out of Sunday school and she shows me her picture, she, she, she shows it because she wants her dad to be proud of her. And so the same thing with Serendi and Nehemiah, they come home from school and they show me the, the A that they got on their report card or the 100% that they got on their test. And then I, I go and I hug them and I say, good job, Nehemiah. Good job, Riley. Good job, Serendi. And I tell them that I'm proud of them. And you should see the look on their face that their, their father is proud of them. They're happy because their dad, the one that they love, is proud of them. When I hug them and I kiss them and I tell them, you are doing an amazing job. I'm rejoicing in their joy. They're rejoicing in the joy that I have in their joy. And so they are happy. And guess what? You and I as children of God, the spirit of God is living in you. You have that same desire. You have the same desire where you want to be pleasing to your heavenly father. 
you, you want to do things that are pleasing to his sight. You want God looking down on you and, and, and smiling. You want him saying, oh, that is great, my son or my daughter. Yes, that is awesome. We want God to be pleased with us. Now, concerning his love, his, his love, that's not something that we have to earn or, or do, if you will, because we know that his, his love is eternal, right? His, his love is unwavering. It's secured in Christ. You are loved right now. The same way you'll be loved a hundred years from now if God allows you to be that long or it's the same love that God has for you when you first accepted Christ. It's that same love. You can't earn additional love. You can't do anything more to lose that love. That, that love you have is eternal. And Pastor Brian will explain that later when he gets to, to Romans 8, 38 to 39. So I'm not going to jump into your text. But God, that love is eternal. But the scripture also supports another idea when it comes to being pleasing to God, though. The scripture supports the idea that we can actually do things that grieve God. We can, we can grieve the Holy Spirit, Ephesians tells us in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29 through 32. We can grieve the Spirit, and we do that. We grieve the Spirit of God through bitterness, grieving the Spirit of God. We, we grieve the Spirit of God through um, uh, anger. We, we grieve the spirit of God through slander, speaking ill of individuals. Those things are not pleasing to God. But again, since you have the spirit of Christ in you, it should be your desire, though, to be pleasing to God. And, and we see Paul doing that or teaching that to the different churches. You look at Ephesians, for example, Ephesians chapter five, verse eight through 10. Paul tells the Ephesians to walk in light. And learn what is pleasing to the Lord. So he's encouraging the Ephesians to be pleasing to the Lord. Walking in light. That's pleasing to the Lord. Also in uh, 1 Thessalonians, Paul instructs uh, the church in Thessalonica how they ought to walk and please God. He tells them to, how they should be pleasing unto Lord to the Lord. Also in Colossians 1.10, Paul tells the Colossians this. He tells them to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So bearing fruit and good works. Guess what, my brothers and sisters? That is pleasing to the Lord when we bear fruit. That's pleasing unto the Lord. So we as believers, we do not want to waste our lives, right? We don't want to waste our lives, but we want to be productive, for the Lord. We want to be fruitful for the Lord, right? As believers, we want to be as fruitful, as productive. We want to bring in the biggest harvest possible for the Lord. We want to be fruitful. But then the question should be, how do we do that, right? How can I be pleasing unto the Lord? How can I be productive? How can I be fruitful to the Lord? How can I produce God-pleasing, God-glorifying, Christ-exalting fruit? How do we do that? Well, Christ, he, he shows us the way here in John 15 in, in verses 1 through eight, he, he shows us the way and how we can produce this God honoring, God glorifying fruit. Now, before we dig more into the text, let's let's just define fruit. What is fruit? Now, I went into the internet, right? I asked the internet, "What is fruit?" Internet, and the internet said, "Fruit is the sweet and fleshly product of a tree or another plant that contains a seed." 
That's what a fruit is, according to Mr. or Mrs. Internet. It's the sweet and fleshly product of a tree or plant that contains a seed. That's a good definition of a fruit, I would say. That's what a fruit is. I like Genesis, though, what, it, what Genesis says. In Genesis chapter 111, this is what Genesis says about fruit, if you will. Genesis 111 says this, God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them, which is kind of like the internet. He says fruit bearing uh, fruit or the earth bearing fruit after their kind, which is the seed in them. So the plant, the tree, it produces a fruit that has a seed in it after the kind that it that it comes from, right? So that's what fruit is. So in a sense, or so since Christ is divine according to this text here, then our fruit should be producing things that are Christ-like, right? So since Christ is divine and, and we produce from whatever we are connected to, then Christ, his types of fruit should be the fruit that we have to produce. So fruit can be defined in this way, Christ-like action, thought, behavior that is grounded in the glory of God. Christ-like action, thought, behavior that is grounded or motivated by the glory of God. It has to be Christ's fruit. Why? Because our Lord, our God, he's a picky eater and he only eats fruits with the label Christ on it. Just like some of us, when we go into the grocery store, we only get that fruit labeled organic, right? It's the same thing. The Lord only accepts fruit that has the label of Christ on there. So it is through Christ. It is his actions that we produce that is bearing fruit. Amen. So now let us look at the first two essentials, the first two components that one needs to produce a God honoring, fruitful and pleasing life. What does the text show us here? In verses one and two, it says, I am the vine. And my father is the vine dresser. So what do we see that a person needs already off top to produce fruit for God? We see that they need the father and the son. They need the vine, which is Jesus, and they need the vine dresser, meaning that your ability to produce fruit does not lie within you. It's not you. You need the vine and you need the vine dresser. That is how a person will produce fruit. It's not us. In this text, it shows us that you have a vine and your father is the vine dresser. So we need God in order for us to produce fruit. Now, Jesus is not accidentally or just randomly using this imagery of a vine and a vine dresser. He's not just pulling this out of nowhere and, and preaching this to this disciples. No, but what Jesus is doing, one, he's adapting the language to fit the culture. Remember, this is a culture that is a agrarian culture. This is a farming culture. This is a, a culture that, that, that knows farming and fishing. And so all throughout the gospel, well, Jesus, even in his parables, he, he, he adapts his language to fit the culture, which is something that we should learn in our evangelism and our discipleship. Remember, oftentimes we go to people and we start speaking Christianese, talking about grace and righteousness and all this stuff. And, and people don't fully understand the language. No, but we have to, like Jesus, we, we, we fit the language to adapt our men to the culture of the people that we are speaking to. And so since his disciples know this culture, they know vines and vineyards, he, he adapts his language to fit the culture. So that's one of the reasons Jesus is using the vine and the vineyard. He's, he's adapting the language to fit the culture. But the most important reason why Jesus 
starts using this imagery of, of vine and vineyard is because all throughout the scriptures, the Old Testament, Israel was pictured or identified as God's vineyard. When you go to the Old Testament scriptures, what you will find is Israel is the group of people who was often identified as God's vine or his vineyard. For example, in Isaiah chapter five, verse one through seven, he identifies Israel as his vineyard. They're called God's vineyard. God plants Israel as his vineyard. And he talks about how he has built a hedge around Israel. Also, in Psalms 80, verse 8, Israel is described as God's vine. Same thing Jesus says, I am divine. Israel is described as God's vine. Another place, Jeremiah 2, 21, Lord, the Lord says this, I planted you, speaking about Israel, I planted you a choice vine, a completely faithful seed. So you see, Israel, again, Israel is pictured as a vine. And since Israel all throughout its history was pictured as a vine um, with, with, with grapes, the vine and grapes became a symbol for Israel. Even um, at one point in time, and I think even right now, grapes and vines were plant was, um, was found on its money. So even if you go to the, the, the currency of Israel, they would have a, a, a grape and they would have vines on their money. Why? Because Israel symbolized to the world that they were a vineyard. They were the vineyard of God. They were the fruit and product of God. So a vine and grapes are very important to Israel's culture. And not only that, Josephus, anybody familiar with jo Josephus? Josephus, he was a, a Jewish historian. And I haven't read this yet. I haven't read this in his works, but it, it's said by many, commentary, uh, many commenta commenters that in one of his works, he describes how the temple looked. And he said that the temple, on the outside of the temple, there was this large vine and there were these large grapes, almost the size of a man right on a temple. And so when you would walk near the temple, you would just see this large vine and huge grapes. Why? Because Israel symbolized the vine. That's who the people of God were. They symbolized that. Now, the problem is Israel never really lived up to that vine imagery. They never really produced the, the, the fruit that God wanted them to produce. Even though he was their vine, even though he built this hedge around them, they never quite met up. They never produced the, the fruit. They really became a fruitless vine. And you, when you look in the scriptures in, in Jeremiah 2, 21, after God says that Israel, you are my choice vine. If you keep reading that verse, he says this, he calls Israel a degenerate shoot from a foreign vine because of their sin and their um, apostasy and going away from God. He, he now calls them a degenerate shoot from a foreign vine. Why? Because they never lived up. They never produced the fruit that God wanted them to do. And so Jesus here in our text, verse one, he says, I am the true vine. He's using the Greek word aletheinos, meaning I am the real vine. I am the heavenly reality. I am the genuine vine. I am the true child of God. I am begotten of the Father. I'm made of the same stuff that God is made of. So he's making a distinction between Israel and himself saying, I'm the true vine. I'm God's real vine. Israel, you are a type. You pointed to who I would be or what I would do. So Jesus starts off this by saying, I am the true vine. I'm the true 
vineyard. I'm the true vine that God has planted and watches over. So we see that is how Jesus is identified here in this text. Now, the interesting thing about this text is how the father is identified. Notice the father is identified as the vine dresser. Vine dressers were laborers. Those were people that actually went in the dirt and got their hands dirty. They're the one that went and and tended to the the vine and they would clip off the the vine so they can produce more fruit. And they would go and wipe down the fruit. That's God. See, this is just so interesting that the father is being identified as a person that's in the dirt, getting his hands dirty and still working, still looking over his vineyard. That's interesting because when you look in other places in the Gospels, for example, in Matthew 21, verse 33 to 41, the father there where Jesus, he's using the same vineyard imagery. The father there is pictured as the owner of the vineyard, as the owner of the vineyard. So the father is both the owner of the vineyard and he's also the vine dresser, the one who's working in the vineyard to prune the branches, to, to make sure that they're still being productive, to, to clean the fruit. So we, we see that God, the father, is still working. He's still working. And it should be encouraging for us as believers to know that God the Father is still working, that he's still pruning and cleaning. This should be encouraging because oftentimes we hear in the news all how, how the church is losing its way. And, and we look at all these statistics, um, statistics, but we should take great joy in knowing that, no, the Father is still there. Um, um, Tending to his garden. The father's still there tending to his vineyard. The father's still there making sure that his church and his people will be productive. So we do not lose hope. No matter what government policies are out there, no matter what they say about the church, we can take great heart in knowing that the father is still there, still working and tending to his garden, still making sure that where his church, his vineyard is going to produce the fruit that he wants it to produce. The father's still working. And so Jesus, if you think about it, he tells Peter in Matthew 6, 18, he says, Peter, that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. So we can take great heart in that, brothers and sisters. Despite what you see, know that God is still in the vineyard. Know that his church is still going to go forward. He's still going to move. So, so far we have seen to have a fruitful, productive life, a life that is pleasing unto God, producing godly fruit. We need one. We need a vine because Jesus in this text, he's the vine. And Jesus says later in verse five that apart from me, you can do nothing. So you cannot produce godly fruit without Jesus. So in order for us to have a productive God, all God honoring fruitful life, you need the vine. That's one. We've seen, too, that you need the vine dresser. We need the father who's still working in the garden, still clipping and pruning the different branches that don't produce fruit, still cleaning branches to make sure that they bring more fruit. So we see those are the two essential things that we need for this joy-filled life of producing God-honoring, Christ-exalting fruit. We need the son and we need the father working in the midst. It's not you and I, it's, it's God. Now, after you have the vine and the vine dresser, the next thing that we must do is what Jesus instructs us to do in the next four or next uh, three to four verses. In verses four to seven, Jesus is going to say one word that's going to constantly come up over and over and over again. And that word is abide, abide, abide in him, abide in me. From verse four to seven, 
the word abide is going to be mentioned seven times. Short little verses, he's going to constantly saying, abide in me, abide in me, abide in me, remain in me. Abide means essentially to remain, to continue, to dwell, to stay in me. And so that's what Jesus is doing. You see, he's trying to hammer home, um, hammer home something. And that is that apart from me, you cannot produce fruit. You need to remain in me. Why? Why is he so bent on telling us that we have to abide in him in order to produce God honoring, God exalting fruit? Why? Because of what Isaiah said in Isaiah 64, 6. We've all become unclean. We've all become unclean. And all of our righteousness before him is as filthy rags. That's why we need the Christ. That's why we need Christ to produce God honoring, God exalting fruit. Also, what Pastor Brian preached on a little while ago in Romans 8:8. 8, 8, in the flesh, we cannot please God. We can't please God in our own self. So apart from Jesus, we can do nothing of great value with eternal significance. That is why we must remain in the vine. Outside of Christ, you can do nothing of great value and eternal significance. We must remain in the vine. And guess what? This is bad news for society. This is, this is bad news for society. And the reason that this is bad news for society, because all of society's great achievements, whether individually or collectively, the, the great inventions that have made our life better, the, the art, the culture, the technology, the, the American way, guess what? If that is not done through Christ and in its strength, it becomes worthless. It becomes worthless. It's all just going to burn up when the new heavens and the new earth comes. All of that. Think about it. Some people spend their whole life focusing on certain things, all of these achievements that they want. And guess what? If it is not done in the strength of Christ, if it's not done to the glory of God, then those works become worthless in the grand scheme of things. That's why that's bad news for everybody spending their whole life. And I'm focusing on my career. I'm focusing on getting that. And if, if Christ, if that is not done in the strength of Christ, if that is not done and grounded with a motivation to the glory of God, then it all becomes just pointless, worthless. That's why oftentimes when I'm watching the news and I see different celebrities pass away, I get sad. Because I've realized that all the stuff that they produce, no matter how good it is on earth, if it is not done in the strength of Christ, it becomes worthless. The best you're going to get is just an RIP tweet or something like that. Or maybe if you're a really big celebrity, they're going to make a movie about your life. Maybe you get that. But is that it? Is that it? Maybe you get a, a movie about your life? See, when that celebrity, whoever it may be, when they stand before Christ, guess what? It won't matter how many number one movies they had. When they stand before Christ, it won't matter how many number one songs they had. When they stand before Christ, it won't matter how many championships they won. It won't matter how many Twitter followers they had. It won't matter how many Facebook friends they had. It won't matter how many YouTube views they had. When they stand before Christ... If it's not done in his strength, if it's not remaining in him, then it all becomes pointless, vain, it's worthless. See, it is only through Christ that we can produce God honoring fruit with eternal significance. So the question then is, or the question that we should be asking then is, 
How do I abide in Christ? How do I abide in Christ if it is only through Christ that I can make my life count and produce God honoring fruit? Then how do I abide in Christ? Well, John 15 answers that for us. I want you to look at verse four. About abiding in Christ. Look where he says in verse four. He says, abide in me and I in you. Now I want you to skip down to verse five. He says, I am the vine. Excuse me. I am the vine. You are. I'm sorry, where am I? I'm the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. Same thing that we're seeing in four. Abide in me. I in you bear much fruit. What do we see in six? If anyone does not abide in me, same thing we see, he is thrown away as a branch, dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. Now look at verse 7. Here's the subtle difference. You just seen 4, 5, and 6. Jesus is saying, abide in me, I in you. Abide in me, I in you. Abide in me. Look what he says in 7. Look at the subtle difference here. He says, if you abide in me, here's the difference. And my word abides in you. Do we see the subtle difference from four, five, and six? What is the subtle difference? The subtle difference is my word. See, it is the word of God, the word of Christ in us that enables us to abide in him and he in us. It's the, it's the word of Christ. Look at verse nine. If you skip down, how do we abide? How do we abide in Christ's love? Look what he says in nine and 10. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, what's he say here? You will abide in my love. What is his commandments? His commandments is his word, his teaching. Again, we're seeing the same thing, having his word. What does Christ say about him abiding in the Father's word? Look what he says in verse 10 about him abiding in the Father's word. Our love, I'm sorry. He says, if you, um, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. So what is he showing us? How is he abiding in the love of the father? It's the word again, the word of God. It's the word. That is the continual thing that allows God to abide in us and we to abide in him. It's the word. If we're going to have a fruitful life, a productive God honoring life, then the word of Jesus must remain in us. It's only through his word that we can produce fruit that preserves throughout eternity. It's, it's God's word. It's continue to believe what Jesus teaches. It's to continue what Jesus says about life and how to find life. It's believing what Jesus said about sin. It's believing what Jesus said about judgment. It's believing what he says about the word to come. It's believing what Jesus Jesus says and teaches about marriage, about treatment of neighbor, about our stewardship of our money. It's about believing Jesus's interpretation of the Old Testament and how we ought to read it and not the status quo of the day. It is all Jesus word having that word abiding in us, dwelling in us. That is how we have this relationship of me abiding in Jesus, Jesus abiding in me. It's through his word. After all, think about what did Jesus do here on earth? 
when he walked around on the earth, yes, he healed people. But what else did he do? He did a whole bunch of preaching, right? He did a whole bunch of teaching. He did, he did a whole bunch of giving his word, his word. So when his word dwells in us by faith, which is the work of the Holy Spirit to go and open our eyes, then we are abiding in him and he in us. And through his word and faith that Jesus divine begins to work through us to produce God honoring fruit. That's how we connect to the vine. It's his word. It's through that word that Jesus now begins to produce this God honoring fruit to make our life count. See, the fruit producing part, it's not a work of you. It's a work of Jesus. Our job is to connect to the vine, to keep his word in us. It's through his word that he begins to now produce the fruit. And keeping his word in us, dwelling in us, abiding in us, my brothers and sisters, it's not as simple as just remembering scripture. You can have head knowledge and do that all day. But it's having the word of God dwelling in your heart where you are constantly interacting with it and you're having conversations with it. And it's being a part of you. It's dwelling. It's living and alive inside of you. Not just laying up dormant somewhere, but know that word is active in your heart, in your body, in your mind, in your spirit. Now, there's no abiding in Christ's word. Let me say it again. Now, if there is no abiding in Christ's word, then guess what? There is no fellowship with Christ. And if there is no fellowship with Christ, guess what? There is no fruit. There is no God productive, all pleasing life. We need his word. It's how we stay in fellowship with Christ through his word. And verse two tells us, Again, if you don't have that word, if you're not connected truly with the vine, verse two tells us what's going to happen Two tells us that the father is going to remove that branch. And Jesus tells us in verse six that that branch will be thrown into the fire. Again, if there is no abiding in Christ and his word, no fellowship with God, that means that branch will be removed and thrown and tossed into the fire. And we see examples of God pruning the tree and removing branches. An example of that is Acts 5, 4, when Ananias and Sapphira. You remember that? You remember when, when it was time to bring up the, the money and they lied to the Holy Spirit? And what, it, what happened there that when they lied to the Holy Spirit, God dropped them dead right there on the spot. He removed that branch immediately. So we, we see the purging. We see how God works and cleans in his church. Another example is, and I want you to go there with me, 1 John 2.19. Go with me there. 1 John 2.19. We'll see another place where God is pruning, where he's removing branches. Sometimes he does it through death, and sometimes it's getting people out of the church that shouldn't be there, that are not productive and fruitful. Look what he says here. In verse 19, this is John, and he's talking about the Antichrist, many Antichrists, if you want to call them. He says this in verse chapter 2, 19. He says, they went out from us, 
but they were not really of us. So they left out the church. They, they left out. He says, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they are not of us. It, they, they went out so that they would be shown that they are not of us. So they left out of the church. They left from out of that fellowship because they had to show that they were not truly of Christ. Now, here's the thing about this text, what I want you to see. Paul, I'm sorry, John in this verse, he describes the people that went out. If you look in verse 18, he describes them as antichrist, many antichrists. That's how he describes them in verse 18, the ones that went out. He said that they really were not of us, the branch that was removed. But I want to show you why they went out. What were they denying? Go down to 22 and we'll see what these antichrists were doing. He describes and tells you the antichrist, the people that left the church, what they were actually doing. We'll see what they believe and what they didn't believe. Look at 22, what he says. Who is a liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. So we see here that one of the things that the Antichrist, these people who left out of the church, they were denying that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, Jesus, all throughout the gospel, John 4, he tells the woman that I am the Messiah. He made it clear that he's the Messiah. So right there, they are not dwelling in Christ. They're not allowing his word to dwell in them. They're denying Christ's word right there. So we keep going. He says this. The one who has denied that Jesus is the Messiah, this is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. So now they're also denying the fun and the, the Father and Son relationship, which is something that Jesus spoke about all throughout the gospel. That's what he preached about. Again, we see the people who are being pushed out the church or who are leaving the church are the people who are not dwelling in Christ's word. The same thing that we're seeing in John 15. They're not holding to Christ's word. Christ's word is not abiding in them. So there is no Christ. And as we see, God is weeding and moving those different branches out of the church. Why? Because they're not holding to the word of Christ. The word that Jesus preached is not dwelling there. So God has to go and clip and remove another branch. See, what, what we must understand that John 15, while people want to make it a salvation thing, John 15 is not a text largely about people losing or gaining salvation, but it is a text about fruit bearing, and it is a text about real Christians versus fake Christians. The real Christians are the ones who are abiding in Christ, abiding in his word through faith. And because they are attached to the vine, they will produce the fruit and prove and show that they are true disciples of Jesus. Jesus even goes on to say in John 15, because you are abiding in me, then when you offer prayers, he said, ask whatever you wish, your prayers are even heard. So this text is about showing what a true follower of Jesus does or what they look like compared to the fake ones. See, the, the fake ones are just hanging around the body, taking up space in the vine. They are the ones that will get clipped from the church, as John Popper would say, in this life or the next. They're going to get clipped from the church in this life or the next. They're just hanging around. You got many people that may go to church, but they're not in Christ. You got many people that will maybe go out and volunteer with the church, but they are not in Christ. They're just doing habits. There's people that sit in pews 
they're not truly a part of the body. They're actually taking space and maybe even sometimes hindering other folk. God will purge and cleanse his church. So we see that the only way that we can abide in or make fruit for God is if we abide in Christ. By having his word abide in us, it is through his word my brothers and sisters, that now we are abiding in him and he in us and we begin to produce fruit, eternal fruit, God-exalting, Christ-exalting fruit. Now, the next thing that we should ask ourselves is, what is the purpose of the fruit, right? We know that we should be producing fruit, but what is the purpose of the fruit? What is the purpose of us producing fruit, well, I've kind of been hinting at it the whole time in this teaching, but the purpose of the fruit is simple. It's God glorified. That is the purpose of the fruit. It's, it's God being glorified. I want to explain it to you maybe in this way. It was last year. My family and I, Anthony's family, we went to Apple Hill. And um, we went to Apple Hill and... Anthony, you guys had already left, but we went to a, a, an orchard, right, where you can go and actually pick the apples from the tree. And when you go to pick the apples, the lady, she says, before you start picking a whole bunch of apples, go and try them first, right, to make sure you're going to like them, right? And so we, we go up there where we're picking apples, and I, and I grab an apple, and I get that apple, and I'll bite into it. <laughs> And it is the most delicious apple. I mean, it is so juicy and sweet. Now, when I bite into that apple, I don't get the apple and say, Mr. Apple, you are amazing. How did you do that? No, what I did after I bit into the great apple, I went to the owner of the vineyard and I began to Tell her how great your fruit is. Your fruit is so amazing. Wow, how did you do it? See, and that is the same thing. Our fruit should point to the glory of God and it points to say, whoa, God, how did you do this? This is, this is all your word. That's why Jesus says in verse 8, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. The fruit that we produce, it glorifies God. It points to the Lord. See, when we, these wretched, broken, crooked, stick sinners, begin to produce Christ-exalting fruit in our life, in our marriages, in our relationship, it draws attention to the owner of the vineyard. That's what you must see. It draws attention to the owner of the vineyard. Have you, have you ever been to a, a party before and, and you went and you tried some fruit and it was good? What did you do? You went all throughout the party trying to find, where did you get these fruit? Ooh, these taste so good. Where did you get it? See, that is what our fruit should do in our lives. For the unbeliever, as we produce fruit, it can be a thing that draws people to God, the fruit that we produce. And for the believer... In the case of a husband or wife, when a husband or wife is producing that godly fruit, it makes the other spouse begin to praise God for this godly spouse that they have. Do you see how the fruit that we produce, it always results into glory to God. Praising God, thank God for my wife. 
When you, when you see him living godly, you see the fruit of a born again new life. It makes you praise God, makes you give glory to God. You point to God for the fruit that you are seeing. This is the same thing or the same point that Jesus makes in the Sermon on the Mount in, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. Do you remember when he says this? Let your light shine before others so that they so that they may see your good works and what? Give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Why is he saying to let your light shine? So that God, the owner of the vineyard, when, when you produce the fruit, so that God, the owner of the vineyard, may get glory. Do you see how God-centered Jesus is in this text? He wants his disciples to produce fruit so that his father, so that God will get glory. (laughs) He is so God-centered. He's so focused on the glory of his father. Even think about the parable of the sower, Matthew 13. Remember, the sower goes out and and he throws seeds. Who's the sower in that parable? It's Jesus. What is he throwing out? Again, his word. What is the point of him throwing out his word so that that seed will take root and do what? Produce fruit. What is the point of the fruit? Glory to the Father. See, it's all about God. Jesus is throwing these seeds. Fruit, Father, you're glorified. Throwing out seeds so God may be glorified in the fruit that is being produced. Jesus is so God-centered. He's glorifying God in every way. He wants his disciples to produce fruit so that God gets glory. Now, our last thought or question is, what does God-glorifying fruit look like specifically? What does God-glorifying fruit look like specifically? Because earlier, we generically defined it as Christ-like action, thoughts, our behavior that is motivated by God's glory are grounded in God's glory. But what does that fruit look like specifically? Well, this fruit in the general sense, back to our general sense, is identified in Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the spirit, right? And what I mean by I say that it's generally identified in Galatians is that Galatians 5.22, it gives us the categories of fruit. Galatians 5.22, in a general sense, it gives us the categories of fruit. Just like you have different types of fruit. For example, you have um, you have berries. That's a type of fruit. You have citrus fruit. That's a type of fruit. You have um, stone fruits like your, your peaches and apricot. Those are all types of fruit. Those are just different categories of fruit. Now, Galatians, for example, let me get there. Galatians 5.22, if you want to go there with me. Now, Galatians, it it gives us the categories. And so, for example, let's just take one or two. Two. Galatians 5, 22, he says this, Paul, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such thing, there is no law. Now, in those, we get categories of fruit. And what I mean is that One category that we get from this text is love. That's a category. Another category that we get is uh, kindness. That's a category. But those different categories have specific things within those categories. And so let me give you an example would be Luke 3.8. Go with me to Luke 3 and you'll see what I mean by that. Go to chapter 3 in Luke. 
Let me explain to you what I mean by that. In Luke chapter 3, verse 8, this is where John the Baptist is preaching. He's preaching to a crowd, and he's telling them to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, right? And then in verse 9, in Luke 3, he tells them that every tree that does not bear fruit is going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. And then in verse 10, the crowd begins to ask him. They say, John, okay, you said you tell us to produce fruit and keep him with repentance. And they, he then, the crowd then asks, what, John, should we do? And then John tells them what this fruit actually looks like, this fruit of repentance, what it looks like. And he says here in verse 11, let's look what that fruit looks like. And he would say, and he answered and said to them, the man has two tunics. The man that has two tunics is to share with him who has none. What is he showing right here? He's showing love, right? He's showing kindness, which is the fruit of the spirit. Do you see how both of those categories are being interacted with? That's what I'm saying. These are the specifics, the fruit of the spirit. Those gives me the broad general categories. Now, how you work out those categories may be specific to the individual and the circumstances that you're facing. We see love being demonstrated, the fruit of the spirit here when the person is without a blanket or a cloak, and he's going to share one. Then he says the other thing. He says, and if he who has food is to do likewise. So the one who has food, the one who doesn't have food, you ought to share. That is called a fruit. Now you're producing a fruit which is backed in love and kindness. So to share our needs or to share our food, that is a fruit of the spirit. That is a God-pleasing fruit. What else do we see here? He says, and some tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you have been ordered. So you got to treat people fairly. You can't get over on people. Some soldiers were questioning him, saying, And what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not take money from one another. Now we can't be stingy. I to think about other people. So do not take any money by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. So in there, John gives us a, lit, a list of um, fruit that is worthy of repentance or that is keeping in kind with repentance, which is based off of or, is, or can fit into the broad categories of the fruit of the spirit, the different categories. So we see now what specifically that fruit can look like in your own life. Again, it's all specific to the individuals. I don't know the people you're interacting with, but however God works and moves when you stay in line and obedient with what his word says, you are now producing that fruit. And I want to give you one more example of what fruit looks like specifically. And this is in the Old Testament. So go with me to Isaiah 5. Isaiah chapter 5. This last one. And I'm going to just read it all. It's the text I want you to see is 7 and 8, but I want to read 5 all the way down to 7 and 8 so you can see Israel being identified as the vineyard. So remember I said Israel is pictured as a vineyard, right? You're going to see it here. And why Jesus says he's the true vine. Look at Isaiah chapter 5. I'm starting start at verse 1. I'm come down to verse 7 and 8 just so you can see it. He says, let me sing for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. So now he's going, he's talking about Israel, this vineyard. He dug it all around, removed its stones and planted it with the choice vine. Remember Jesus says, I am the vine. He's talking about Israel now. They are the vine here. 
He built a tower in the middle of it and also hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes. So what is he saying? He expected it to do what? Produce fruit. There we go. That's what God wants. Fruit that glorifies God. But it produced only worthless ones. Verse 3, and now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. Look what God says. What more there, um, what more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? <laughs> Why, when I expected it to, pr- to produce good grapes, uh, did it produce worthless, worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will remove his hedges. It will be consumed. I will break down its wall. This looks like a judgment that's coming now. Break down its wall and it will become trampled uh, by the ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge to the rain that no rain will come on it. So now he's saying there's not going to be no more rain. The hedges are removed. Why? Because you were not producing the fruit that you should be producing. Seven, he says, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah is his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice. This is key. But behold, bloodshed for righteousness, but a cry of distress. So what are some of the fruits that God was looking for right here with Israel? Justice. So that tells us that justice is what? A fruit. That as we as believers, what should we be producing in our life? We should be just in our ways, just in our dealings. We see that this is something that God wanted to see in Israel, but they were not producing the justice. As opposed to justice, he said there was just bloodshed. And he says, as opposed to righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. And if you notice, if you remember back from our teaching on justice, remember when I say you see justice and righteousness right by each other. He's trying to highlight the point of justice. It's the same Hebrew words for justice that are being used right here. And now he's going to describe in verse eight how that injustice actually looked. He says, woe to those who add house to house. And join field to field until there is no more room. So what were they doing? So people with houses, nice big houses, would just go and keep taking up more houses and leave other people out. Or or people with land would go and just keep gobbling up more land and and just take it. See, they were being unjust in their ways. And God frowned upon that. That wasn't the fruit that he wanted. So to produce fruit for God, my brothers and sisters, we have to be just in our dealings. That is why I was so adamant about preaching justice to you, because it matters to God. Do you care about justice? Do you care when you see it not being lived out? It matters. It is a fruit of the spirit of God that we will be just in all of our ways. See, these are how we produce or these are the fruits of a life that is tied with Jesus. These are the fruits of a life that is tied to the vine because we see that Jesus was just in all of his ways. And if we are tied to this vine, we should be producing the same Christ-like fruit, the same Christ-like fruit in mercy, the same Christ-like fruit in kindness, the same Christ-like fruit in justice, the same Christ-like fruit in love. We ought to be producing this fruit. This is our responsibility because this fruit brings glory to God, to the Father. So to recap, 
to produce fruit in our lives, to produce that God-honoring, God-exalting life, a life that is full of the fruit that pleases the Lord. We need one. We need the vine. Remember, we can't do it unless we are in the vine. We need Jesus. We need the Father, too, working in the vineyard, plucking out the branches, cleaning us, sanctifying us, moving us so that we can go and produce more fruit. And three, we must abide in Jesus, abiding in Jesus through abiding in his word and having his word abide in us. And why do we want to produce the fruit? We want to produce the fruit because we want to be pleasing unto God. We want God getting the glory for all of our accomplishments. We want to behave like Christ where we point to God in everything that we do. This is the foundation of a joy-filled life. Bearing fruit for God. That is what we must do, my brothers and sisters. Allow God's word to work in you mightily. Keep his word in your heart, thinking on it, engaging it, thinking on it just dearly. Allow that word to live in you. And through that word, God will begin to produce fruit in your life. You want fruit? Get into his word. Stay and allow that word to rest in your heart. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your truth, God. We thank you for this word that you said that washes us, cleanses us, Lord God. God, we ask that you continue to cleanse us, Lord. God, allow your word to come alive in our spirit, Lord God. Produce your fruit, God, through us, Lord God. All of the things that bring glory, God, use us as the vessels, Lord God. We want your name being lifted up on high. Lord, we have encountered you and seen your glory. We want others seeing and praising you with us. So God, use our life to bring you glory. We thank you, God, for just allowing us to be in the vine, producing these fruits. We thank you, Lord. Be glorified on today and throughout the rest of the week, God, and the rest of our life. In Jesus' name, amen.